0: Hi everyone, David here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. If you like what you hear, I want access to more of our fascinating in-depth content on the energy transition, you need to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for just 29 euros, which will get you full access to our website and app. We also have a wide range of subscription packages to fit you or your company's needs. Follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello, and welcome to episode 39 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy, all about the shift to a decarbonized economy. My name is David Weston, and joining me today is Jan Rosner from the Regulatory Assistance Project and Michaela Hull of Agora Energy Vendor. Hi, team. We've made it to the summer break. How are we feeling?
1: Well, you said it. We've made it to the summer break. <laughs> so I'm proud. <laughs> uh yeah we are wrapping up today which is nice again and then we're all off to a well-deserved break
2: yeah i'm actually leaving tonight so i'm i'm uh, ready uh to take um a couple of weeks of of holidays it's been a busy first half of the year hasn't it um so i'm i i certainly need to uh not thinking about energy for at least a couple of weeks to uh, wind down a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Normal
1: heat pump tweets?
2: I'm doing a last heat pump tweet, actually. Um, I'm about to send it on chocolate and heat pumps. I've, I've had ah, a, a series okay. of food-related um, heat pump threats lately. You might have seen one on, yeah. on brewing Beer. beer. Um, yeah. Which ended up on the BBC with a a, a morning interview, I think um, at six fifty on a, on a Saturday morning, which was actually way too early for me yes. on a Saturday, and and then another one on whiskey the other day, and was, what what do we do next? Wine, but you don't really need lots of energy to make wine, so chocolate. That's the next one. Very good. Yeah. High temper, oh, high temperature process,
0: low temperature process, <laughs> but still. Not so high, right?
1: <laughs> I would say more low. A
0: hot uh,
1: summer is enough to melt.
0: Yes, very true. So I, my, my partner told me to this morning about a, a meme going around about a woman in Texas that managed to bake a loaf of bread in her postbox <laughs> because of the current heat wave. Uh, that much of the world is uh <laughs> experiencing right now uh, and i guess especially in texas so um yeah maybe we just maybe you don't need heat pumps for chocolate you just leave it out in the sun Absolutely. This week we are looking back uh, on the year so far and reflecting on how far the energy transition has progressed. We'll discuss some of our favorite moments from the pod, touch on things that we may have missed and what we hope to see in the rest of 2023. So let's dive straight in. How do you think 2023 is progressing so far uh, as far as the energy transition is concerned? And have we made good progress? Any progress? Lack of progress?
2: Jan? I think we've seen an acceleration um, and the uh, the latest figures coming out of the likes like the International Energy Agency on what is expected in terms of the renewable energy additions, for example, this year, um, I think, look very, very positive. Um, uh, when we look at electric vehicle sales, for example, those numbers, I think, are higher than what people thought they, they would be. Uh, that's looking good. Mm. Um, I think it's going to be interesting to see to what extent the very significant momentum we've seen last year um, in 2022 will continue because much of that, I think, had to do with this very steep increase in energy prices, certainly mm. in Europe. And now there's a bit of a sense that the pressure is off, yeah, prices have come down again, gas prices are actually more or less where they were, maybe still a bit higher. But um, I think there's a general perception, and there was a survey, I think, recently done that in the, amongst the general public, the worry about energy prices is kind of going away a little bit. And I think that might translate into uh, sort of less demand, perhaps. But at the same time, I think yeah, we still see massive um, investments in renewables, there's a huge pipeline of projects. We talk about permitting on this this show many, many times before, mm. and the bottlenecks there. So that yeah, you know, the capital is there. The investors want to invest. I think the main challenge now would be to unblock some of that. Um, but I think the discussion so far is is going in the right direction because people are well aware of the challenges ahead. Um, but yeah, I would say it's so far 2023 going pretty well. Uh, on the energy front, I mean, we, we should probably talk about the heat waves later a little bit and, and kind of what all that means. But, um, yeah, we, we, I think we, we, we're doing well um, on the energy front, but there's certainly some alarming signals that we're not moving fast enough.
1: Well, I can add. Um, I mean, yeah, there's uh, those trends, you know, that also the IEA is always very bullish on and saying heat pumps, PV, etc., and also, if you look at the EU level, I mean, it was pretty much exactly two years ago that the commission came out with the Fit for 55, the first big package. And if you look by now, most of it has been adopted, like includes the, you know, cars, renewables, everything, uh, stronger ETS. So I think from that point of view, um, a lot has happened and and basically continued to, uh, happening even despite the, the shocks and the crisis, mm. but on the other hand, I th- I see also I'm I'm there's two trends. huh? there's also this other trend that basically this year we saw a new record in fossil fuel subsidies that was also reported by the IEA, um, and then you had recently uh, several fossil fuel companies basically announcing to pull out of clean investment mm. like Shell, where then even you know. Some of their staff that was working on those bits resigned, um, and given that they had record profits, and given that we spent quite a lot of money in, you know, to go through the crisis, I, you know, that's something to be addressed, right? Mm. Um, if they don't want to uh, invest, who will? And then also just, uh yeah, just to see how we bounced back after after COVID. I read this week that. Uh, a few days ago was the day with most planes in the sky like never ever have there been so many planes Um, so basically there are a few trends which are clearly not sustainable and you know it's obvious that if you want to go ahead these kinds of things have to be addressed right
0: how much of um, kind of touching a little bit on Jan's point but also on the subsidies for fossil fuels how much of that is being um pushed by the ongoing conflict in ukraine do we think if if there is a a a quick resolution to that that might change things i don't think there's going to be it sounds like it's going to you know go on and on for a a bit longer sadly how much of that impact is still having how much of that conflict is still having an impact on specifically in europe european policy um security of supply working out how much we've got gas we have in reserve those sort of things
2: I think there's a huge impact Um, uh, and um, we've just seen, I think um, recently that there's been a revival of nuclear in the UK, for example, the UK Mm. government has committed uh, to essentially expand nuclear, um, mainly arguing that this is contributing to energy uh, security in the UK. Um, I think we're still very much aware of the risk of relying on importing vast amounts of fossil fuels from other countries into Europe. So I think that's not gone away. Um, At the same time, as I said before, I think prices have come down for now. And the interesting question is, of course, well, what will happen next winter? And the IEA have just um, put out some some analysis saying, well, actually, if you have a very cold winter and there's limited supplies of uh, gas in particular from Russia, you know, we still use Russian um, fossil gas in Europe, uh, mainly through the LNG route, but it's still there. Um, if if we reduce that for any further, there could be uh, price spikes again. Uh, so the risk is is still there and is still seems to be still fairly significant. Um, I mean, having said that, I think the LNG capacity now in Europe, uh, in terms of the, the the terminals that have been built. Uh, will make a huge difference, no doubt, in, to the ability of, of Europe to import LNG. But of course, that's, that's just a short-term fix. And ultimately, uh, we, you know, we, Europe needs to find a way of, of using less fossil gas. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I remember one of the first episodes we had, I think it was um, Dennis Hassling, who was now at the IEA and used to be at Acer and used to be uh, the head of gas um, and now works for the IEA on the same topic. Uh, we talked about the need to move away from gas. This was, um, I think, long before the war in Ukraine. Mm. And, and, you know, we kind of looked into the transition and what that would look like to transition away from fossil gas and from fossil gas imports. So I think that's still very, very relevant and very, very much needed. Uh, And the war in Ukraine, I think, has highlighted uh, how risky it is to rely on those imports. And the LNG... Transition is is I mean it's it's more expensive. Let's not forget that LNG is not is not cheap. I mean pipe, pipeline gas from Russia was very very cheap for Europe, uh, and LNG has always got to be more expensive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. I mean this 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 higher price situation that we in a way always had is there to stay. I think that's that that's clear. Uh, uh even if you know supply as such is not is not necessarily threatened. it's interesting what you say about the IA being you know warning and let's not be too complacent this winter was okay because I read uh, recently in a few you know announcements and tweets from the European Commission more like yeah the storage is filled up and even if Russian, piped gas, which we do still receive, some countries still do it receive, I think the Austrians and a few eastern countries, so if only the piped gas from Russia were cut off completely on its low level, that would not in itself um, present a risk, but I'm not I have to say I'm not too much into the detail on knowing exactly how much the share of Russian LNG has gone up and whether that could be uh, an issue, i yeah. Not too much informed on mm. that, I must say. Mm.
0: But so overall, it seems like we're doing quite well. 2023 seems to be quite a good year in terms of the energy transition. Are there any areas that perhaps progress has not been made as quickly as you'd have liked?
2: Well, I mean, the politics of some of this uh, have turned out to be rather complicated. Um, and uh, people will have followed what happened in Germany, uh, I mean, on a number of issues where there's been a backlash. Mm-hmm. um by uh, s- certain politicians against the phase out of the internal combustion engine in uh, in germany and in europe um and there was a renegotiation uh, you know of that of that framework um to allow um also the combustion engine uh, as long as it still uses some um renewable fuel uh, e fuels uh, so that's been sort of one significant development uh, and I think the, the even even more polarized debate has been around the heating law in Germany, which um, we haven't covered, I think, on the podcast extensively. But uh, you know that that heating law um, was introduced by the uh, coalition um, in the treaty in 2021 already, and it said that by 2025 you can no longer install a new heating system that doesn't use at least 65 percent renewable energy. And that was brought forward by a year after the invasion uh, on Ukraine and suddenly spilled into a very polarized, um, pretty nasty uh, public debate with a, a lot of misinformation being put out there and the very confused uh, public, uh, right. I, I think, not knowing what to do with all of this. Uh, and we're now left with some sort of compromise which still remains to be seen what that compromise will look like after it has been passed through Parliament. But already what we're seeing now is, is a heavily watered down uh, law and um, it remains to be seen to what extent that has actually uh, any teeth and will actually make any significant impact in Germany. But it just highlights how difficult some of this is. Mm. And a lot of the progress we've made in the energy transition so far has been further upstream. You know, it's been in the power sector. We replaced coal powered fire stations with wind farms and people don't really see that unless they live near one of those wind farms um and i think now we're kind of moving into areas like personal transportation you know people's homes which are much closer to home um quite literally and that's where uh, it gets more challenging because people um need to be buying into the the journey otherwise um yeah, that it creates um, resistance, and I think that's what, what happened in Germany, where politicians have kind of uh, used that as a way um, to create a very populist debate, which was, I think, deeply, deeply unhelpful.
1: We've seen the same kind of populism emerging also in the EU debate, and some people say it's already the, the beginning of the campaigning a year before the European elections. Usually we had a more short, you know, compared to national, we had a more short campaigning period um, i mean definitely if i want uh, just to pick up on what jan said i mean what what what's really striking is that one effect of this crisis situation was a little bit more going back to national approaches and mm. you've seen the germans and the french you know using their weight Jan said with the co2 standards in cars the french trying to push nuclear so um You know, taking hostile of the climate discussion in a way, which already, you know, you have a heavy, you have a heavy workload. I mean, it's, it's insane what's still going on this year, the whole gas package, then the market design that we opened. And then you spend half of the scarce time discussing these national pet projects. You know, is this helpful? Right. Um, and we saw that they couldn't agree. Um, yeah so and then one one thing i want to still pick up which which uh, i think we see both at the german national level but also at the eu level is this abuse of this new of the term technology neutrality right
0: Mm. yeah
1: Um, which comes out as hey come on let's So, uh, yeah, let's be fair, everyone a chance, but frankly, if it results in ignore my external emissions, there cannot be a technology neutrality for net zero journey, right? And um, so what I would like to hope is also in the context of, you know, we are discussing our response to the Inflation Reduction Act and uh, our competitiveness, that this is finally being sorted because, you know, what, for example, uh, Jan just mentioned, this uh, loophole for e-fuels for the combustion engine. I mean, these kind of things result in one thing. It's investment uncertainty, and that's the worst. That's, I think, technology neutrality. It's investment uncertainty, and... um, as long, you've seen it with the heat pump, that mm. the market is now again, you know, it's, well, it's maybe it's a dip, but still, what? Why would you inflict that on yourself? And why would the country that is most strict around fiscal rules inflict that on its partners? Right? There's only a limited amount of money. We need to prioritize, and one ingredient to make this whole thing cheaper would be to be clear.
0: Mm but i guess you can't as a as a politician as a as a leader of a country you can't be seen to necessarily support one technology over the other or be able to make a decision make an informed decision All right we're going to go with heat pumps and district heating and then that's who we're going to support is that a, that's not a that's not a realistic option in modern society
1: I don't know. You could start by saying that at the moment, we actually support the others. It is not a level playing field. You could at least pick the people up there and say the whole system of subsidies, be it Belgian, you know, company mm-hmm. cars or determined taxes are in fact biased towards fossil. Mm. I mean... You know, I would have loved that someone makes this as a, you know, like there's, they, it is not a level playing field. So don't tell me <laughs> that we are destroying it. Right. I don't know. Like, as I said, it of course, you this, this kind of picking winners, but if you look at it, that's what the U S have done in a way. They were able to, to, to single out the technologies that they think will be the future. That's what the Chinese do as well. Hmm. So not
0: I don't know, the, Jan, what do that, you say? Well, is that not what the taxonomy is meant to sort of do as well in in terms of it picks out the, the green technologies?
1: Well, only that it doesn't, right? I think the taxonomy <laughs> is one piece, but I th- I think it's also important to to work with the regulatory framework. I think, yeah, the taxonomy is one, definitely. But I think you should, there's also a role for regulation to play, in particular if you have, if you are not the U.S. government then can print dollars forever, right? Um, So I think that the the European Green Deal, if you look back, was was based on using the three tools together, right? Pricing, like carbon pricing, um, money also, also for fair transition, but also regulation because, you know, we cannot just dump money like the U S have done. Right. Um, and then I don't know Jan, what do you think, but for example, I think after the German dis- the discussion around the heating law, mm, you know, anything hinting at phasing out fossil boilers and heating, be it through eco design or through EPBD will be much more difficult to achieve.
2: Yeah. It's politically quite, quite challenging now. Um, and it, it, it i don't think it was a necessity it could have mm. been avoided i think um but but also partly there is there's always going to be opposition um against significant interventions of of that kind but on the on the on the point that dave made about mm. technologically uh te- technology openness um i i think it's often used as an argument to do nothing and to just say all options should be on the table um and let's not worry about it too much and and do nothing um unless and i haven't seen that you then s- propose okay let's let's not be any pr- any more prescriptive what technology should play a role but then have the framework for example through carbon pricing that would um provide sufficient incentives to uncover whatever the cheapest uh, mitigation options were. But that debate didn't happen either. So I haven't seen those people who called for technology openness at the same time saying, and here's a framework that we will use to make sure we achieve the climate goals. You know, it's often just used as an argument to prevent any meaningful change. Uh, And, you know, we actually know from the evidence that some of these solutions are, um, just wishful thinking, magical thinking. You know the the amount of e fuels currently available uh, globally, and this is something the Potsdam Institute has looked at in great detail. Uh, the entire project pipeline that is currently confirmed for e fuels globally, I think, this would only satisfy something like ten percent of end users in Germany alone, where we really need e fuels. Uh, yeah, where there are fewer alternatives, uh, let alone transportation and heating. Um, where there are alternatives already. So it's it, yeah, saying that this is going to be a great solution and will uh, play a very significant role in the future It's just based on wishful thinking. It's not based on the actual evidence. And, and that's, I think, what worries me is that people make those arguments, which seem logical, right? You don't want to pick winners uh, and make mistakes. If there are other technologies that could be cheaper, better, more effective, and you've excluded those from your framework, that would be a bad idea. But what I often see is that people uh, will deliberately then push solutions that are actually um, not going to work, at least from what we know today, um, and could delay progress. And let's not forget, we only have you know two decades and a bit left uh, to to decarbonize um, many of the sectors, uh, and the longer we wait, the harder it will get. Um, so I, I don't think we have time. We don't have time. To let the market find the best solution um it's not happening fast enough we have to speed up and regulation has to play a role in that
1: yeah also what I, what sometimes is missing in debate is exactly the sense of urgency right like two things that struck me like um let's take industrial emissions directive right just now was also substantially weakened due to this general fatigue of now we have Im- too much regulation so you know the Green Deal takes some bruises on the last stretch a bit. Okay, so there, that was the idea. We include industrial farming, and they, you know, they would do, have to deliver on on, on methane emissions. Methane particular relevant for urgent, you know, for sh- short term effect, right? And again, exempted as always. If there's a CO two dis- level discussion, agriculture is always out, always out. And I wonder for how long we can continue doing this. So, first of all, ignoring a little bit, the putting priority to what delivers most in the short term, because we see we are really reaching a few tipping points. I mean, you see what's going on, right? So, in a way, that to give value to what reduces most in the short term, but also to not let get to, you know, to in a way, if you exempt One sector, you have to propose a solution of who else will give, otherwise, this is ridiculous. I mean, so I would like to see okay, we have taken out if there's a good reason to take out a certain group or sector, but then you know, we have to put it in the overall picture okay, what does that mean for the Green Deal ambition overall? Um, and then propose a solution because otherwise the climate law in you know the eu climate climate law in effect is meaningless right if you just accept these kind of exemptions and for example we haven't looked in depth in agora at the outcome of this famous nature restoration law discussion right that uh, was happening over the past months but just looking at it if you exclude peatlands wetting etc and everything, it seems quite hard to, you know, okay, discussions are still going on. This was the parliament position, right? But in a way, it was significantly weakened. But you would then have to say, okay, it seems quite difficult then to meet the obligatory carbon sink targets that we have adopted. So um, it would be nice if, you know, we'll need to look at the bigger picture and see where are the inconsistencies here and... Um, I think this will be necessary also because, you know, at EU level, the what's still coming out, uh, everyone's tired already, but uh, due to the COP timeline, what the commission still has to do is to come out with the 2040 proposal, right? And uh, we have looked at it at Agora, and (laughs) this will not be an easy discussion because we will jump in one decade from minus 55 to we propose 90. So in a way... This what what Jan alluded to, this must you know, we need now to tackle the harder sectors, industry and buildings, is implicit in there because basically those two have to go towards zero emissions in the early 40s, right? And the power sector was the easy part. (laughs) And and I think indirectly those discussions on okay, are we ready for systemic change here now will come back in that file in the second half of 2023, I think. And uh, I, yeah, just, I, I wonder how you can win this discussion that, you know, like, I'm not sure I have found an answer.
0: Hi everyone, me again. Please do rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It really helps us out, means we can make more shows like this and means more people can find us. Also, a quick reminder to subscribe to Foresight Climate and Energy so you don't miss out on any of our other podcasts or long-form journalism. Head to the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. I think the key point you made there was the fact that it's, it's very short-termist still. Um, and But you can kind of understand why it is. Obviously, there's, there's still the threat. Uh, from from the invasion of Ukraine. And then there's, you know, these are politicians. They have elections to win. We have European elections in 2024. There's going to be a, a UK general election in 2024, probably. There's going to be a presidential election in 2024. The, everyone's trying to get reelected. And so they're trying to do what's best for them in the short term. Uh, in their best, you know, to try and stay uh, in in power. Uh, I don't know about other national uh, elections. I assume Germany might still have a couple of years, but it won't be long, I guess, for another round of elections there.
1: Well, you have the Polish coming in the second. You have part, the Polish coming uh, later this, this year. year. You have the Spanish yep. even coming, I guess, in between recording and airing of our podcast. So yeah, yeah, there's always something, and that's the point, right? I mean why what i what i find difficult to reconcile is like i mean we see it's like we we sit in a control room and every alarm is beeping right the droughts the fires the heat and i always assumed once you see the effects also in europe that then there would be a possibility to act but the opposite seems to be true right i mean we have all these Alarm beeping. Uh, At the moment, we have 45 degrees in Italy. Mm. And we have seen everything for the past two years. And still this short-termism can come and make this argument about, no, now we cannot afford ourselves to protect nature because it's against the economy, which seems to be (laughs) like the 80s come back and speak to you, right? So I don't understand how this can happen at the same time
2: frankly. It's called cognitive dissonance. And actually, when <laughs> there are surveys where the, you know, if you ask people, do you want um, to get to net zero by 2040 or get to net zero tomorrow, then the majority of people will say, yes, that sounds great. Let's do it. And then you ask them, okay, um, what do you think of um, you know, implementing this regulation or that law, um, phasing out this technology? Um, yeah, you know, then it's suddenly oh, no. oh no, I don't want no, that. Man. I don't want that. Um, uh, and so there is a dissonance, I think, between what people would like to see, which is climate neutral uh, society, economy, uh, and what it actually means to get there. And I think, I mean, I think it's the job of politicians to um, navigate that really complex tension. Yeah, you know, of people wanting to actually wanting the majority of people want the right thing, right? They want. Uh, that we decarbonize faster and that we decarbonize in line with uh, the Paris Agreement. Um, yeah, there's, there's broad public support for it. There's broad public support for renewables. There's broad public support for many of the other technologies we need. Um, but I think it's the role of politicians to communicate how we're going to get there and do this quite carefully and in a nuanced way, Rather than politicizing this, um, because I think it can really lead to some lasting damage that is then difficult to repair, Uh, and it's not the job um, I think of analysts. Yeah, analysts can't can't do that. Yeah, um, investors can't do that. Industry can't do that. It is the role of the Politicians have a critical role there as communicators and. I'm afraid we have seen you know, some of them not doing a pretty good job um, at that and, and they need to do better, I think, if we take the climate goal seriously. I think that that is, um, I think, Michele, what you're pointing to is that despite the you know, widespread media coverage and people talking about the signs of, of clearly the signs of, of climate change, um, uh, I, I, I think there, there, there is this, this disconnect still and, and I, ultimately I think we have to hold up. Politicians to account to to be better communicators and get get the public uh, on on the right side here.
0: Surely it, there will come a time because that it, it they have to address it because everything is becoming interlinked now with climate and energy. You know, industrial policy has is inextricably linked to climate and energy. Um, the economy is having to become you know linked to the climate and the economy. Energy policy, obviously, is linked to, you know, every kind of part of the political spectrum, any decision you make needs to have or be made through the lens of energy and climate. Um, So at some point, they're going to have to address it, surely.
1: But Jan, so basically, I take it from you that you say the German government, for example, made mistakes in the way they communicated around the heating law, right? What, what would you Not so have- much
2: the government. I wouldn't. I mean, I think there were also some mistakes being made. If we use the hitting law as an example, I mean, the the there wasn't a full fully costed uh, financial support package um, available when the law was being brought forward by a year. Um, so one of the questions I think that people asked is, well, what about people who don't have any money? How are they yeah. going to pay for this? And the answer was, "Well, we're we working on that. You know, we still we still have to work out the details, which just isn't good enough." I think in a, in, when you tackle something this this big and this difficult, you have to have a full policy package that is is coherent, has been well thought through. No, but I, I think that the people who have exploited this, yeah, um, uh, you know, populists who have basically mis- spread misinformation, and um, that is, I think, is quite a dangerous. Path, and that is that. That's where I see more of the fault is people exploiting yeah, really um, the the complexity and exploiting the difficulty that, that you yeah, know this is challenging and it's very easy. It's it's very very easy to um, play populist politics on the back of this, right? This is this is this is not exactly not you difficult don't have, to find entry points. You don't
1: have to offer a solution either, right? You. <laughs>
2: oh. You don't. You don't, and that—that's what makes it so attractive. At the same time, yeah. If if you if you're just interested in to come back to Dave's point to win the next election, um, and part of the electorate will uh, actually respond to a, a very populist argument very very well, then yeah, why not use it? You could argue. Um, uh, but yeah, for, certainly, we've, we've seen in Germany is that much more widespread um, populist debate about this. Um, uh, which really was deeply, deeply unhelpful. Uh, I think there are other examples of how it can be handled in a much more consensual uh, way. The Netherlands is a good example of that, although, of course, we have um, yeah, interesting political developments there too with the government now mm. falling apart. Um, uh, and, and remains to be seen how that pans out, but um, uh, there are other ways of doing it. Um, and and, and what, what Germany has done mm. was... Um, I think, in retrospect, really unhelpful, and and will will no doubt affect yeah. what happens in Europe.
1: Yeah, I'm afraid so too.
2: Yeah. Do you
0: think there's a a growing sense, perhaps, among the electorate, among the average Joe in the street, of um, tiredness about talking about climate and energy? We, you know, there was that wave, after, especially after um, Russian invasion of Ukraine, where people were talking about their energy bills and how they need to try and keep them down and things, and that was, you know. Great to hear. Lots of people talking about that. Are people now getting tired of that, having to talk about that? I mean, talking about uh, the stop, just stop oil protesters in the UK. People just weary of hearing about it all now, and just want to get on with. You know, there's other issues that they have to deal with in their day to day lives. Cost of living crisis being primary among them. Is there is there a, is there a growing sense among the electorate that they just don't
2: particularly want to talk about it anymore? Gosh, I think this comes in waves, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, you, you have you have, um, uh, and it's and the media uh, play a significant role in this too. Um, but but, but I, I think ultimately, people, as I said before, the majority of people um, are very much in support of the energy transition. That's what all the surveys show very clearly in different European countries. Um, yes, the the importance that people attribute to energy and climate will vary depending on where we are um are people a bit tired right now maybe but then we currently go through this this uh heat wave frenzy and um yeah i I think it's just a very it's a very complex undertaking there's always going to be uh bumps uh, you know along the way right It's not it's a rocky road Mm -hmm. um, to net zero it's never going to be easy um so i'm yeah, I don't know what, what how to answer your question, Dave. I think some people will be tired. Um, some people um, don't think there is a problem in the first place, but I think the majority of people are supportive, and it's important that we um, offer them solutions and and talk about the positive aspects of this. Um, yeah, because there's so many great examples yeah, where you can actually uh, cut emissions and reduce costs and create local jobs and you. Know, Let's not forget, we we spend vast amounts of money importing fossil fuels from other places around the world into Europe. That money is lost. We could use that to invest in clean energy in Europe, create local jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a really good news story there, and and we we should focus much more on that, um, the positive aspects of that. Um, So I'm an optimist when it comes to uh, the long-term I think vision for for energy, we, you know, things will happen faster than we think right now. I think that that's my take. I'm, um, I, I I'm on the side of people who 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 think that's that we can't foresee how fast these things will actually happen. When we look at other technologies, we've been surprised before, so I'm, I'm I remain optimistic.
1: <laughs>
2: I think I'm a bit less optimistic,
1: but uh, are you're also optimistic about using Twitter as a channel to. To promote your positive stories, or um, how? What is energy Twitter? How is energy Twitter developing in this year?
2: It's a funny one because I've seen, like, I have seen people sort of saying on Twitter, "Yeah, this is it. That's it. Uh, Twi- energy Twitter is over. We are going to move over to this other platform." But then, well, what is the other platform? Some people said they go to LinkedIn. Some people say they go to Mastodon. Uh, and there there's all these other platforms. Uh, there's a long list of smaller platforms that um, people have, have tried out. But um, mm-hmm. I haven't really seen that happening, <clears throat> Michaela. I mean, I, I I think there's some activity on these other platforms now more than before, for sure. But uh, the vast majority of people mm-hmm. are still on Twitter. And I think the simple reason for that is that if you invested years of work building a following, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's just... It's just inconvenient to build, rebuild that again on another platform. Network externality. It's pretty yeah. annoying, right? It's it's like you've already made that investment, exactly. and yeah. it's it's a, there's a certain degree of stickiness, I think. And it, Twitter is quite even if you have uh, a CEO who introduces. Uh, un- Unpopular changes to the platform. You've got more trolling. You certainly got more nastiness. And just just the other day, I had someone accusing me of being a Jewish ideologue who is anti-hydrogen, um, <laughs> uh, together <laughs> with some other prominent voices on Energy Twitter like Archostra and Michael Liebreich and others. Um, totally ridiculous tweets. Um, in the past, those you could report them and they were taken down. And now, yeah, this stuff seems to be kind of fine um so it is it is becoming i think less um you know, professional and there's just more trolling going on and some of it actually being quite distasteful and, and ho- pretty horrific but you know, for now i think energy twitter is still pretty active i haven't seen um you know massive uh, migration to threads or to mastodon or linkedin yet um i mean that may happen at some point mm-hmm. but I I, I don't think it will happen um, anytime soon um, for the reasons that I've I've given. I think people um, don't want to rebuild their their following on another platform unless there's a massive, like, yeah, let's say Twitter collapses, right? Then it will happen. Mm -hmm. But if Twitter is still functioning... I don't think it will happen anytime soon. That's my take, but I'm, I'm speculating here.
1: I would agree with you on, you know, that basically the voices are still there and stuff. But I mean, the it, in the area of climate change, it seems evident from, you know, that the voices pro-climate change are muted through the algorithm and you don't get the same traction, whereas the voices that question this are pushed. So in a way, your effectiveness on this platform, even if you you know the same level of activity, will go down, and I think um, that kind of makes it possibly less yeah less effective, less useful, right?
2: Yeah, I think that's that is probably right, and I've seen um, I think it was Kat and Joshy who did some analysis mm-hmm. on on some of the big accounts yeah. um, from. Uh, climate deniers versus big accounts from climate scientists, for example, uh, seeing a massive increase in traction of of climate skeptic accounts, essentially, uh, since Elon Musk took over Twitter. Um, I I must say, personally, I still see quite a lot of traction for clean energy content on Twitter, lots of engagement. Um, But, yeah, I do see some of the accounts that previously were um, I ne- never even know they existed. Suddenly they show up in my uh, For You timeline. Um, uh, yes, yeah. stuff I really don't want to engage with much uh, and I typically ignore. Uh, but there is that feature now, which I think is is interesting. And I, I don't know what, what is driving that. It must be an algorithm that suggests um, content that is actually um, opposed to your views on your For You <laughs> tweets. Um, so you can, you can see something that's different. Uh, that's that maybe is driving it. I I, I don't know, but um um yeah. And, and what is driving the track the increased traction for uh, more more critical accounts of of the energy transition um, is an interesting question. I haven't actually seen a compelling argument um, that explains it very well to me. I mean, the algorithm could be to blame, um, or is there something else going on? Um, yeah, I, I I have no idea. Um, I don't know, Dave. What do you make of it? I mean, you've you, you, you've 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 um, been tweeting over the years. Um, I don't actually know, you know who runs the Foresight account, whether that's you um, or someone else, but you, you, you you're kind of following what's going on there quite closely too, mm. I guess.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I do a little bit on the on the Foresight account as well as my own, um, and I think. I think with the recent changes to Twitter, there's definitely, I think, been a lowering of just the number of tweets. I think there are fewer people on there as regularly. Um, I don't know whether that's because of that 600 tweet limit, daily limit or whatever it is. But um, I just think there's there's not as much discourse. I think the people are still there. I think, you know, uh, you, you guys and all of your colleagues are doing a really good job. But I just think the volume has reduced. The number of tweets has reduced that are actually of any use, especially. Um, mm. So I, I do think that, and I do think a change is coming, whether it's to mm. a whole nother platform that exists or another platform that's being developed, or I don't know, I don't know where it will go, but I think a change is coming, um, or it might be Twitter, it might be, you know, something that might happen to Twitter and makes it valuable again. But um, I don't think, I think the days of day long conversations on Twitter are perhaps behind us um, but yeah it still I still it still has a value I think um, for putting out the the relevant information and if mm. you if you want to find it, you can find it mm-hmm. um, it is out there, but it's as you say there's a lot of noise to cut through and um, moving on then, what do we expect from the next half of twenty twenty three is there anything perhaps that we haven't, we've not missed on the podcast that you want to talk about? Is there anything that you think is coming down the pipeline that we will need to be looking out for in, in the next half of 2023 and into 2024?
2: I think we haven't talked much about IRA, have we? And uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and its impact on the energy transition in Europe, um, which I think actually has had quite a profound impact um, and has really changed – I think the way how Europe looks at clean energy. Uh, so that could be an interesting topic of discussion for the next few minutes.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I think IRA is, uh, or the Inflation Reduction Act is having a, a profound impact across the world, not just in Europe. Um, many other markets as well having to react to it in some ways. I'm interested to see how the likes of Europe, because Europe um, can't compete economically with the US or China. Um, it just can't. So it's going to have to be much more, I guess, targeted in in its response, which kind of goes back to our point earlier about mm. you know being technology neutral and and not be you, you just can't do that uh, if if you want to compete with the US and and China. Um, so it's going to have to maybe not pick winners, but perhaps that's not the right idea. But as you, as I say, be more targeted mm-hmm. in its response to protect European investments and and European uh, jobs. I guess.
1: Mm. Yeah, fully agree. Well, we did talk about it here and there. It did came it come up in the episodes, on huh? if I remember somehow. It always came up in the episodes here and there.
0: Yeah, and we had um, Catherine Hamilton join us exactly. uh, at the end of twenty twenty two, and she was obviously a keen. Uh, a a key author of of the IRA. So she gave us a really good sort of, I guess,
1: overview of it.
0: Yeah, Yeah, obviously, I I take your point. We now need to maybe talk a bit more about its impact, uh, especially within Europe and and around the world, but also within the US and seeing how it's uh, taking effect there.
1: Well, um, I I guess I will watch a bit the, the end, you know, the last mile in Green Deal implementation in the second half. Um because, I mean, we had, you know, we still will have discussions on a few files that introduce the idea of more circularity and see how that is going, you know, for construction products, et cetera. And then still, you know, we had all the fuss. I uh, I mentioned it earlier, nature restoration law, but the, the discussions to go on, there's rules on soil, there's, so there. there are still a few rules to come. Where it's interesting to see how this, if this continues in this very polarized way, or um, you know, whether there will be the foundation of new ways of of producing, for example.
0: Do you think there's still a hype surrounding green hydrogen? Is that, or has that argument been not one, but has are people now more realistic about the use of green hydrogen or clean hydrogen? Um, and how do you think that's going to play out in the next
1: six Well, we months? saw a quite seminal milestone this year when finally this dele- famous Delegated Act got adopted. So we basically have rules now for, you know, what counts as green, even if you take the power from the grid. No, that was the core of the discussion um but you know the u.s have now the same discussion and uh that will be interesting to follow as well because they have exactly the same uh decision to take for ira and what counts you know how until when is it green what counts Mm. exactly the same discussion imminent by the way that the, the u.s authorities um uh issue their 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 position um um, I think, uh, we should shift, uh, the attention to the fact that we've spent three years discussing what, what needs to be done in order for it to be renewable or green hydrogen. But funnily enough, four years into a hydrogen hype, no one finds it odd that we haven't established what a fossil based hydrogen has to meet in terms of requirements, right? So, um, and given that we're handing out money as well, I saw the innovation fund, you know, there is, it's europe's biggest fund for clean technologies they are contemplating including this as well so there better be a definition right Uh, because otherwise you know a failed blue hydrogen project is just a gray hydrogen project which on top received money not sure that's (laughs) what we want
2: (laughs) the debate is not over right i mean the the hydrogen debate will will um, continue for years to come. Um, there, there's no doubt. Uh, I think we will find that along the way, uh, it, it, yeah, some of the hype will be replaced with realism. Mm. Uh, that's already happening. Um, I think, Dave, you kind of hinted at that in your in your question. I think we we're already seeing that, uh, but it's going to take some time uh, for for that to filter through, mm. um, and we still have. The targets in place in Europe, of course, uh, for 20 million tons of green hydrogen by 2030 and current global production of green hydrogen, the last figures I have seen from the International Energy Agency, it was less than a hundred thousand tons uh, uh, global green hydrogen production. So there's a huge gap, uh, yeah, between what the European Union wants to do and and what is currently happening in the world. Um, so we, I think we will continue to have an interesting discussion around how achievable are those targets, uh, and um, what is actually realistic. Um, I remain a skeptic. I think it's highly unlikely that Europe will be able to. Uh, generate and import uh, mm. 20 million tons of green hydrogen in you know, seven years' time. I think that's highly unlikely. And But, yeah, that debate, I think, will continue for sure.
1: Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, this year maybe we have, how I perceive it, I mean, Agora came out with this publication that in particular made this point that the 20 million tons, if anything, we see them much further down the line. This is not for 2030. Uh, and then you had more voices questioning this. So I guess in a way, um, to answer your question, Dave, indeed, there was a dose of realism injected in this discussion, but it's, uh, it's not concluded at all. And what I see in particular, then this discussion would have to feed into infrastructure discussions, right? So basically, if ever the, you know, if ever the conclusion is that, uh, Things will play out differently, then you have to also immediately adjust uh, the infrastructure planning and investments for it, I guess, which hasn't happened.
0: Uh, and I guess second half of the year sees COP28 yeah. um, and uh, international talks around energy continue. Um, what should be, what areas should our listeners be looking out for perhaps coming out of COP28?
1: I'm not following it too closely, but I from what I understood, <laughs> there is still the discussion again how they will express themselves vis a vis the role of fossil fuel and when the phase out has to happen. Um, something that was dodged last time. Uh, we also had an interesting episode on that, no? Uh, and a little bit on COP diplomacy and is it enough and is it only words? Um, but I would also, yeah, and maybe, maybe because COP alone might not be enough in the words and that find end up in the final declaration. I think what I would like to see also, especially after the IRA, is a little bit more regulatory, you know, regulatory cooperation in particular between the EU and the US around certain things that could be helpful. To set minimum standards, and uh, you know, be it for hydrogen, be it for steel, be it you know, for materials and the conditions, etc. I think that that would be something to follow.
2: I'm curious how this uh, whole uh, story around the host yeah. um, uh, will unfold, because there's been, of course, a lot of uh, stories uh, yeah, around the sort of links to the oil industry. Uh, in Dubai mm-hmm. and, and um, yeah, how, how will that affect uh, the the next COP? Um, yeah, it's not my area of expertise, um, but I, I, I'd certainly be interested in, in seeing how, how the host man- can manage the expectations and can deliver a result that people welcome. Um, so it would be interesting to see how they mm-hmm. do that. I mean, there's clearly... Um, a lot of diplomacy that that um, needs to be needs to be done to, to make that happen. Um, uh, but yeah that, that's one of the interesting questions for me is to what extent that will affect the uh, the cop itself mm. Um, mm. Uh, So that that's something to watch and we should certainly get someone back on the we program will. after mm. the cop um, and and take stock and see how how things are going. Um, also I guess the current heat waves and the flooding mm-hmm. um, yeah, will that maybe amplify? Um, calls for uh, yeah, more ambitious outcomes. Uh, I, I, I guess so, but it yeah, remains to be seen how it affects uh, the actual talks at COP.
0: As you uh, may have guessed, we're going to take a, couple, a short break uh, for the summer. Um And we'll be back in September with a host of new guests uh, and interesting people to talk to before we go uh, and and start our um, well-deserved holidays. Do you guys have a recommendation of uh, maybe a a past episode that uh, our listeners should go back if they've missed it to go back and listen to one of your, perhaps your favorite uh, What Matters podcast or even Policy Dispatch or Energy Enablers? Uh, Mm -hmm. a little As long
1: as it stays within the family.
0: (laughs) Stays within the family. Of course it does. Um, is there anything you'd go back to listen? You recommend our listeners go back and listen to uh, while we're uh, sunning ourselves on the beach. I
2: I would actually go back pretty far to the beginning um, of of the um, podcast when we first started out, and if you want to hear something positive and. Something that is inspiring. I would listen to the episode we recorded with Greg Jackson from Octopus because just because it's, I think it sets the tone in a way, um, that is more suitable for, suitable for a holiday uh, beach (laughs) podcast listening. Uh, yeah, it's full of hope. It's full of inspiration. So I would encourage people to go back and listen to that. It's, it's a timeless piece. Uh, it's just as relevant today as it was back when we recorded it.
1: That one was was a good one. I agree, uplifting. Um, well, um, I would normally recommend also um, a, a more recent episode that we recorded with Mohamed Harin. But I have to admit, it's also heavy stuff for a holiday <laughs> to dive into the intricacies of CBAM, the carbon border adjustment mechanism. But I, I thought it was at the same time also. Uh, It gave me food for thought when, for example, he, he said, and that is a bit relevant for what we were discussing today, that what he predicts is that, um, in a way, the industry associations will break out and there will be the ones that want to go fast and then the ones that want to go slow. And I was very often going back and thinking about that when, you know, when we saw the discussions this year, a bit more polarized, whether this is the end point or not. But I admit it's maybe not everyone wants to listen to CBAM on the beach, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that and that's obviously, but that'll be quite a good one, because there's still a lot to be decided around CBAM. Uh, there's an article coming out later on, on Foresight uh, on the CBAM itself and sort of the decisions that still need to be made around it and mm-hmm. the uh, impacts that can have. For other markets, China, US, okay. uh, Australia, as well. So, um, yeah, a good primer uh, for that and for the second half of the year uh, for the year. Uh, for me, mine—I've already said mine—the uh, the episode with Catherine Hamilton uh, at the end of last year um, about the IRA, um, her role in helping to author it and to mm-hmm. uh, and what it's going to mean both for the US but also for uh, other markets. I think that's a really again a really good episode to go back um, and listen to and see, maybe see whether some of those um, thoughts have played out. Um, and my other one would have been, and again, another one we had mentioned was the uh, episode uh, with Simon Evans uh, talking about uh, the COP mm-hmm. uh, and what it's like being at COP and um, the value of these discussions, both from a geopolitical point of view, but also as a networking and, 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 meeting people and, and discuss having discussions with uh, other interesting people uh, as the place to be when it comes to energy and climate. So I, I, those might be my two. Again, uh, if you are sat on a beach uh, twiddling your thumbs, uh, go and check those out. <laughs> um just finally then before we go um we'll do a quick what caught my eye uh for this week um i will quickly start and say the one the thing that caught my eye uh was the decision um for jaguar land rover to build a four billion pound gigafactory in somerset in the uk um for battery maybe the uk Uh, a battery factory
1: batteries yeah
0: um for for electric vehicles finally the there's been lots of full starts in the uk battery industry uh for big factories like this and it may be some fine some decent financial backing behind one uh could see it be kick-started so but i thought that would be interesting down in somerset near bridgewater near hinkley point c i guess um, which is quite interesting <laughs> um kind of juxtaposition there uh michaela how about you what caught your eye
1: uh, the ASA opinion on the European gas grid operators uh, 10-year plan uh, because it was relatively critical, questioning a record amount of conventional gas investments and questioning also uh, that uh, all you know that basically, the gas grid operators picked from repower a bit what is what they liked. <laughs> we mentioned already the hydrogen, the 20 million tons target, but then ignored the rest of it, which was a faster pickup of renewables, etc. And so basically the the Acer questioning the the forecast of, of, of demand, basically. Uh, because I'm curious how this plays out. Um, <laughs> uh, it's just the Absolutely, first step yeah. in the process. It's very techie as a process, but at the same time, very interesting and relevant. And going to
0: the basics. Absolutely, Jan. Uh, yeah, what caught your eye?
2: Well, I must have. I must say, it is is actually the heat waves um, and and what's going on uh, in Europe, but also what's going on with flooding um, uh, in in parts of the US um, our, our head office is in uh, Montpelier Vermont and the whole town has been flooded uh, pretty badly so oh, no. that that caught my eye and um, uh, it's not really an energy topic, but it's of course linked. Of course. Um, so that, that's that been the main one for me. Well, I hope
0: everyone in Vermont, uh, especially at RAP, are doing well. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Michaela and Jan. Uh, as we said, we'll be taking a very short break for the summer, but we'll be back in September. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we've said on today's podcasts or about the energy transition in general you can reach us on our twitter accounts i'm on at dave w underscore foresight Jan, i'm on Jan rozenau and michaela
1: at citizen sane one
0: you can also tweet the show at what matters pod or email us show at what matterspodcast.com. thank you all so much for listening have a great summer and we'll see you again next time